All right, everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm here with Dr. Paul Zak. He's an American neuroeconomist. His current work applies neuroscience to build high-performance organizations and to understand and guide consumer decisions. Dr. Zak is the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economic psychology and management at Claremont Graduate University in the US. He's also the author of books like The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity, and Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. So Dr. Zach, it is really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you a lot for accepting the invitation. Absolutely, thanks Ricardo. Okay, okay, so I guess that we have to start with the basics. What is neuroeconomics? Because I guess that most people won't know what we're talking about here, so. Right, so I know, Ricardo, that you have never made a bad decision in your life, but <laughs> your friends who are buying uh, investment real estate in 2007 before the big bubble burst, you know, what's the idea on that? If we have such big brains, if we've evolved these millions of years, to have survived and reproduced, how do we make bad decisions? Getting married, uh, you know, what to buy, what kind of car, you know, uh, it, it's amazing. So what we helped create a bunch of uh, guys, uh, scholars in the last twenty years, is to measure reactivity while people make decisions to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And if we could just ask people, hey, why'd you do A instead of B? My work is done. But we run experiments. If the decision is at all interesting, um, two things happen. One is people really can't tell you why they did it, which makes sense neurologically. And second, we get lots of variation for the same set of choices. People do quite different things. So you and I are very normal people, but what about those other people who drive a purple car or a Harley motorcycle or whatever? So I've become a very um, accepting person of the variances in human behavior because we see very high variance in brain activity for the same kind of situation. So it really helps us understand the beautiful and weird humans around us. Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay, and so what are the aspects of the brain that you're most interested in? Are you interested in perhaps putting people through some sort of tests and see what parts of the brain, what areas get activated when they're performing certain tasks? Are you interested more in studying perhaps the hormones and the neurotransmitters that operate in the brain or, or what exactly? So we really began looking at questions uh, revolving around interpersonal trust. And so work I had done in the early 2000s showed that at the country level, trust was among the strongest predictors economists have ever found to understand why some countries are poor and some countries are prosperous. So the question is, where does trust come from? So we worked a lot on the underlying biology of high trust countries. Um, so what are those environmental conditions? Why do we trust strangers? And if you don't have trust, then, you know, you need a policeman in every corner to, to, to um, guarantee every kind of interaction you have. So as humans, we're very social. We, um, you know, think of getting on an airplane. You put, you know, uh, a 300 chimpanzees in a metal tube for five hours and shook them around, you know, and in the first 10 minutes, you'd have fur and blood, fur and blood flying. 
But humans actually do this rarely. They actually chat with the person next to you. It's fun to live in big cities. So what is that? So once we did this work and we showed that trust is a, is a really powerful lever to help us understand why some countries uh, function effectively and some countries don't. So uh, high trust countries tend to be rich countries and poor countries tend to have very low trust. The natural question is, well, what's happening in the brain between two individuals? Why do I trust you, Ricardo? But, um, you know, your, uh, your neighbor, uh, Jose, don't trust him at all. Um, you know, the only way we can be around strangers is to have something in our heads that says, you seem like a safe person to be around. You seem like someone I, who is trustworthy and someone else does not. And so we began to look at the underlying biological basis for that. And we're the first group to show in human beings that this hormone and neuromodulator oxytocin um, in the brain was a primary signal that someone around you is trustworthy. So we ran experiments where people could be could trust you or not trust you with money. So it wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't just saying I trust people. You had to put your money on the table. And the more you trusted someone with your money, the more their brains made oxytocin and the more they reciprocated. So, uh, so we've studied this in many different ways from infusing synthetic oxytocin to people's brains, functional brain imaging, uh, and now have actually uh, developed uh, technology in a company that uses wearable sensors so we can measure people's social interaction second by second. Mm -hmm. Okay, so oxytocin, this is a big part of your work. What is this uh, molecule slash hormone about? The, in what ways does it influence our socialization and how we deal with other people? So about 20 years ago, um, oxytocin was only known to facilitate birth and breastfeeding uh, in, in women. And uh, like many other um, neurochemicals, it either leaks into the brain or is produced in the brain. Oxytocin itself is actually made in the brain primarily. So it's released in the brain and released in the bloodstream. But scientists only looked at these peripheral effects, you know, in the uterus, in the breast. Um, and yet we had a rich research, a rich research program in animals showing that oxytocin in the brain uh, motivated uh, uh, pro-social behavior. So if you're a rodent and I smell you because I can't see you, I'm in a burrow, I release oxytocin if I recognize your scent, for example. Say, oh, that's Ricardo, he's safe. So I can affiliate with him, I can stay close, stay warm, uh, stay in that little burrow together and protect each other. And so I thought, well, maybe humans do the same thing. The problem with this study is that in animals, to sample oxytocin, you drill a hole into the skull and take out some spinal fluid. So I was guessing humans wouldn't be super excited about me drilling a hole in their skulls. So we had to develop some protocols where we could measure uh, uh, the brain's acute production of oxytocin. And we can do that because of some weird evolutionary quirk, which is when it's made in the brain, it's made in the blood. So if I can capture that uh, factor in blood very rapidly, because it has a very short half-life, then I could actually measure what was going on in the brain in the peripheral blood supply. So once we did that, we had a great tool. And as you know, we have uh, literally been around the world um, identifying the number of situations that cause the brain to make oxytocin. And we see these positive social behaviors, helping behaviors, generosity, charity. And so there's a lot of mysteries that help us understand. So the standard view in economics is that if you donate money to charity, you're a confused person. Right? Why would you donate money to your favorite charity um, you can't, you don't know who it's helping. Isn't money good? So this sort of, I call this caveman economics. Me like money, money good. Ooh, me keep money. 
right? And yet we see a lot of people sharing all the time and often with strangers, often when no one's looking. And so economists had, had developed this idea called warm glow. They said, well, it just feels good, so you do it. Well, that explains everything, right? That explains why you buy a pet, that explains why, you, you know, I mean, that's just not a great explanation to me. So what we showed is that when we have a particular, a particularly emotional stimulus, so we use, for example, short videos of children dying of cancer, that the brain produces oxytocin, even though uh, that is at a distance, it's in a two-dimensional screen, and the oxytocin release is very high, and it produces this kind of tension in your brain. So now you're like, oh my God, kids are dying of cancer, and when we ask them, would you like to donate money, the more oxytocin your brain makes, the more money you donate to charity. So, so that alone is kind of interesting, but that tells us why, not you and me, because we're super macho guys, Ricardo, but like why people cry at movies, right? Neurologically, this is really interesting. So you go to a movie, you're aware this is a fictional story, you're aware these are, these are uh, professional actors, you know that you're in a the theater, you're cognitively intact, but at the end of the movie, when the boy gets the girl, uh, you're crying. Why is that? So it draws on our deep social nature. We need to connect to other human beings. We are fascinated by what the other human beings are doing because we learn about what we might do ourselves and our brains are acutely attuned to the production of oxytocin during these social engagements. And not only does it change our physiology, change the way our brain's working, it motivates us to take action. And that to me is really interesting. So now we're, we're instead of dismissing people as irrational or somehow over-emotional, I don't even know what that means neurologically, they were saying, oh what, as social creatures, we are super fascinated by social things in our world. We're fascinated by other things too, but social stuff is super important for humans. It's the reason that you could fly me to, are you in Lisbon, I'm guessing? So I could fly me to Lisbon and with my terrible, terrible Portuguese, I would fit in. And if I lived there a couple you know, weeks, I would get to know people, I would get to know my local baker and grocer, I'd make some friends. That's really interesting, right? That's, that shows you how uh, gregariously social human beings are. And what we did was find a mechanism that helps explain many of those behaviors. Again, oxytocin doesn't work on its own. Lots of other neurochemicals are activated when oxytocin is released. And we've worked on characterizing the larger brain network for social behaviors. But oxytocin seems to be this key initiating response that says, hey, this looks safe, right? So it's working on the opposite branch of the nervous system from the fight or flight response. Like, oh my God, this guy looks dangerous, he's got a knife, i got to get away, right? Most of the time, you walk in the grocery store and you see people, hi, how are you, you know, we're friendly. That's interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it's very interesting because, uh, as you said, it seems that oxytocin is one of the main molecules that operate in our brain and that mediate our personal, social, romantic attachments and things like that. But, I mean it doesn't always have the same effect in terms of uh, how it influences how we behave toward other people because it depends on the person we're talking about. I mean, there's a difference if the person is part of our in-group or if she's part of an out-group, right? Uh, yes and no. So, uh, so very good question. So oxytocin is a graded response. So I'm releasing some oxytocin talking to you because you seem very nice. 
But when my daughters, you know, when I'm go see them, when I'm done talking to you, I'm going to release much more oxytocin um, because I love them a lot, right? And you I like, but I don't love you. So uh, anyway, um, so it's a graded response, but it's also a response that is, as you said, very context dependent. So if I'm at home and I'm stressed out and I'm having a bad day and my kids come by, high levels of stress, epinephrine in particular, inhibits the release of oxytocin. So um, what we found in experiments is that uh, for most healthy individuals, about 5% of them won't release oxytocin for a powerful stimulus. And about half those people, of that 5%, are having really bad days. Stress levels are very high. They're in survival mode. I can't connect to you because I'm just trying to get through the next 10 minutes. The other half have traits uh, that are associated with psychopathology. So we've actually done studies in prisons where we measure criminal psychopaths, and we have a, a very powerful stimulus, like a little kid with cancer, a little video. And if you ever make oxytocin, you'll make it when you watch this video. And guess what? Psychopaths don't release it. So um, you know, this gives us an insight into human social behavior. So you asked about in-group, out-group. Um, so we recently published a study where we looked at um, who were more likely to release oxytocin with. So lots of literature saying that when I meet you for the first time, I release more oxytocin than when I meet you uh, the 20th time. Because I now, because, why is that? Because I meet you for the first time, I'm like, oh, I got to sort of, all unconsciously, of course, figure out, do I want to be around you? Should I talk to you? Should I avoid you? And so if you seem safe, in a sort of gestalt sense, your body language, your words, your facial expressions, I actually release more oxytocin the first time I meet you than the 20th time, because 20th time, well, Alex Ricardo, great guy. I don't, I don't need to burn the metabolic energy to produce this signal because I have a memory, and that's metabolically less costly to activate. Oh, Ricardo, good guy. Right now, again, you come with me a knife or whatever different story, I'm gonna, my, my uh, neurologic state will change. Anyway, we did this study where we had people who are already in groups. We randomly formed people in groups, and we made that group salient by having them do something their group would do. So, for example, one of our groups was soldiers. So they dressed up in uniform, and we had them march for 10 minutes around my lab. We took blood before and after. Most people raised, uh, caused that to increase their oxytocin. But then we had people interact sharing money with people either from their own group or a different group. And we didn't use the word group. We said, you're a, you're a red or a blue. So you wore a tag on your shirt, either a blue tag or a red tag. We didn't say anything about it. So oh, you're, in the, you're in the blue group. And then the computer said, oh, you're interacting someone with the blue group or the red group. So it turns out that if your brain makes oxytocin, for the next hour, while that oxytocin is active in the brain, we've melted the self-other divide. You actually do not show the typical in-group bias that most of us have because oxytocin essentially says, hey, you're like my brother, you're like my sister, you're, you're kind of part of my family member. Again, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping, it's a graded response. So it's like I was a little oxytocin and I'm loving everybody. The more oxytocin I release, the less I treat you like an outsider, even if you're in a different group than me. So um, again, I think it tells us that we can very rapidly form teams, relationships. It's not difficult to do. And one of the applications I discuss in my new book, Trust Factor, is you know, how do we put people at work in these, in these teams? Like we, don't, we hire people or whatever, or I move to a different office, and all of a sudden I'm, on, I'm part of a team. That's an oxytocin effect in which we get, okay, these guys are safe, we all have a purpose, we know where we're going, as long as you don't feel like you're, uh, you know, dangerous to me in some way, I'm going to work together for the common goal, right? And that's what humans do really well. That's how we put a man on the moon. That's how we do all these amazing things is by having the underlying 
brain structures that uh, allow us to very rapidly form relationships and work hard for the benefit of the group. So lastly, this is a long answer for your great question. So from a neurologic perspective, we have two factors that drive that. One is we have many more receptors for oxytocin, particularly in the frontal cortex, than any other mammals. This is a purely mammalian response, number one. And number two, the stimulus required in humans to cause the brain to make oxytocin are very, very slight, right? Just seeing a face, a drawn face is enough to do it. So it doesn't take a lot. So we're just super sensitive on two levels uh, to social stimuli, which means we're, we're really effective social creatures, which is how we can live in big cities, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay, since uh, other animals, particularly as you said, mammals, also have oxytocin operating in their brains and have these uh, mechanisms mediated by oxytocin, the, these mechanisms of social attach, attachment and so on, uh, do we already know anything uh, to uh, if oxytocin, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, first evolved to create uh, maternal attachment, that is the attachment between a mother and their children, and then uh, other mechanisms piggybacked on it for us to be able to use it also to mediate our other sorts of social relationships, like the relationships we establish with our family and also with our friends and our group and other people as well. It's a great question. So a variant of oxytocin first appeared in fish about 400 million years ago. And so the, um, the, the problem for fish that want to reproduce is, if I'm a female fish and I let this male get close enough to me to fertilize my eggs, I might instead get eaten by that male fish, right? So what oxytocin did was only when that um, female fish was ovulating, uh, it's called basotocin, it's a version of oxytocin, only when the female fish was, was ovulating did it allow for partner approach, right? So as you said, then it evolved, and in mammals, it uh, squeezes, out, squeezes out babies, uh, causes the uterus con to contract, and causes milk letdown for breastfeeding. And so it was this kind of maternal bonding uh, hormone, which is really the hallmark of mammals, right? Uh, you know, care for offspring. And then around 200,000 years ago, the, the dating depends on rates of mutations in the human genome. Um, it looks like there was a, a mutant in which um, this human, human or proto-homo sapien got a lot more receptors for oxytocin, and that started this kind of grouping behavior. So before, it was very small familial, you know, extended family groups in these clans, and then um, those clans apparently started getting bigger and bigger in the sort of 200,000 to 100,000 years ago, and then by 10,000 years ago, we have civilizations where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are living in big communities. And so, um, you know, we don't know for sure the causation between this, but, but the dates line up pretty well with human social behaviors. Um, so uh, the, the punchline here, as you sort of set up, is that all these good behaviors, which I call moral behaviors, and I have no philosophical or religious meaning with that, other than I'm, I'm being a good social creature by helping others. So all these moral behaviors come out of this mother-child relationship that is so powerful in, human, in uh, humans. And so um, intuitively, that makes a lot of sense, right? So what we found by studying, for example, uh, adults who as children were severely sexually abused or abandoned, 
is that this brain mechanism for uh, producing and, and um, activating the networks that are, are mediated by oxytocin are often shut down. So again, the brain is the most expensive real estate in the body, and if I'm not getting nurturing, then the, the ability for me to nurture others is just not present. That, that brain tissue re you know, reorganizes to do something else that may, may help that organism survive and reproduce. And so you know, there are these critical developmental periods um, but if we're, you know, you're blessed enough to have a caring, you know, a caretaker, then most of us develop these, you know, appropriate social behaviors. So uh, current work we're doing is in autism and schizophrenia and depression and all those to varying degrees have disorders in oxytocin and associated uh, impaired social behaviors. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've been focusing the conversation on oxytocin as a social mediator, let's say, but as you've already referred to, we also have uh, a lot of other hormones and neurotransmitters that act in our body and particularly in our brains also to mediate the ways by which we behave toward other people. So, uh, and I remember that in one of your books, at least, you talk a little bit also about testosterone and stress hormones like cortisol. So could you please tell us a little bit about uh, how the differing levels of these hormones uh, might have uh, perhaps or, or, or might influence how oxytocin acts in the brain? Great. Uh, so, you know, as we started studying this, we dealt a way to measure the brain's production of oxytocin uh, through through uh, blood. We developed a way to infuse synthetic oxytocin into the brain, but we also wanted to look at oxytocin inhibitors. And again, this was established in the in the in the animal literature, and I stole it and applied it to humans. So, as you said, the two sort of potent oxytocin inhibitors. Uh, one is high levels of stress, which you can measure with uh, uh, hormones or high levels of heart rate or sweat, lots of ways to measure that, uh, tends to inhibit oxytocin release. And the, the really interesting one is high levels of testosterone. So uh, testosterone tends to inhibit oxytocin release. It's, again, not a one-to-one -one mapping. I could have high testosterone uh, or I, I could have um, and high oxytocin uh, depending on the situation. So um, just a step back, sorry for the sort of bio people listening. So oxytocin as a neuromodulator, which is similar to a neurotransmitter in the brain, is an acute response. So it's a stimulus, quick response, and then shuts off production. Testosterone is a chronic response, right? Made in, in males in the testes and females made primarily in the ovaries. And this is circulating your blood and it leaks into your brain and it changes, uh, again, it's a neuromodulator. It changes the way that neurotransmitters and networks of uh, systems in the brain um, operate. Uh, so when, when chronic testosterone is high, uh, it, it um, uh, inhibits the brain production of oxytocin generally. So how do we know this? Because we do experiments where we administer testosterone to males or placebo, and we see that it makes them less pro-social. They, for example, share less money with strangers. They demand people give them more. Um, so now we're getting this kind of interesting picture of these peripheral hormones that leak into the brain or made in the brain that interact in this very interesting way. So one of the things that we see psychologically that oxytocin does is increase our sense of empathy. So um, again, sort of crying in the movies, right? If, if you, it's a really positive, strong social stimulus, very emotional, um, you have this sort of empathic response where you 
presumably cry because you see yourself in this situation. You could kind of imagine yourself going through whatever this is. So what does testosterone do? It, it, it uh, cuts down that empathy response. So who are the least empathic people you can think of? Teenage boys. You, you and I both used to be teenage boys. And we see for high testosterone males in particular is this extreme self-focus. And that makes a lot of sense evolutionarily, right? If I'm 15, 16, 17-year-old boy, it's about finding myself in the pecking order. It's about fighting. It's about sports, um, uh, trying to attract girls, right? Uh, all those things are kind of testosterone-driven. Uh, so uh, even testosterone is very context-dependent. If you win a chess match, your testosterone goes up. If your football team loses tomorrow uh, on TV, your testosterone will fall. So um, all these neurochemicals, and there may be about 200 or so active in the brain, are in this big soup that are affecting our behavior in very subtle ways. And that's why I said in the beginning, I've become very accepting of the wide variety of behaviors that we observe, because I as an individual don't know what my testosterone level is, or my oxytocin, or my serotonin, or my dopamine. And so someone comes in your, your office to see you, and he or she is grumpy and whatever, and you know our first response is, oh, what a jerk this person is. But now, because I've been doing this for so long, my response typically is, oh, this person probably has high cortisol, high stress, high testosterone, uh, doesn't produce enough oxytocin, right? So, um, so through this research, we've developed a bunch of hacks, if you will, to cause the brain to make oxytocin, and we can talk about some of those, so that you can kind of interrupt this potentially bad behavior, or, or let's say maladaptive this situation, and then change the way uh, that person behaves by understanding their neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at this point, I would like to ask you if there are any relevant sex differences in terms of the levels of oxytocin, because uh, when we talk about the literature, for example, on personality, uh, we tend to get the result that males tend to be, for example, more aggressive and women uh, more agreeable, j just to give a couple of examples here. Uh, and we tend to associate that with the sex hormones because males tend to have higher levels of testosterone and females higher levels of estrogen and progesterone and things like that. But uh, do you know anything as to if oxytocin might also play a role in that or not? Great question again. Uh, so for every study we've run in the last 15 years in which we uh, find the stimulus for the brain to make oxytocin, on average, women make more than men do, and statistically, significantly more. So that corresponds with our stereotype, that women are more empathic, are nicer, are more social. And there's, there's a nice wide distribution around that, so we sometimes find males who have very high oxytocin response, and we sometimes find, find females who have high levels of testosterone, for example. Um, so the other thing is personality. So we have found that people who are more agreeable and more empathic by personality trait tend to release more oxytocin for the same stimulus. Um, so these are people people. They're very warm. They tend to have more friends. They also tend to be happier because they have better social relationships. So, um, you know, the, the wonderful thing, I think, for listeners is that um, all these tests, all is too strong. Oxytocin, testosterone are all uh, uh, neurochemicals that are tunable to your environment. In other words, you can train yourself to make more oxytocin. So, um, you know, I'm a, you know, six foot four, you know, kind of former athlete, kind of, you know, 
I love to be outdoors. I like sports. I, you know, I'm not the warmest, cuddliest person, but I've realized how valuable it is to be more empathic. And I have been, I've trained myself in the last 20 years to release more oxytocin because I can test it myself. Um, and, and I think I've become a much better social being because I focused on uh, inducing oxytocin release in others and then getting that reciprocation. Uh, so one of the things we did early on was looking at, you know, again, the variety of stimuli that we thought might make the brain release oxytocin. We showed that touch did this. And so many years ago, I thought, uh, I'm an introvert. Like, I'm talking a lot now. But normally, I like to be in my lab. I you know, don't have to talk to anybody for six hours. I'm super happy. And I thought, well, I wonder what happened if I just started hugging people instead of shaking hands. So just as a, as a total flyer, I just uh, tried this. And, um, and I found that people opened up right away. They got much warmer with me. I'm like, oh, this is a great oxytocin hack. And uh, anyway, so I just started doing it just almost as a, as a self-test. I mean, it was just an interesting little mini experiment. And, um, and then this reporter for Past Company came and visited my lab, and he kind of outed me as uh, Dr. Love uh, talking about hugging people, uh, which at first I didn't like. I'm a serious scientist, you know, I don't want – but then I thought, oh, how great. I, now I get to talk to people about the biology of love, and that's, you know, what – What's more interesting? Every every song in the radio just about is about love, right? So, um, anyway, so I've sort of embraced that that mantle. Uh, but again, I think uh, for listeners, these brain systems are very trainable, and if you sort of think about or understand the underlying neurochemistry, then you can actually change that in yourself and in others. And this is also how we persuade people to do things. So I, I like to say, as social creatures, we're always trying to influence other people's behaviors. Full stop. Right? And so if I want to do that effectively, I want my kids to do their homework or clean their room or, or I want my colleague to help me with a project, I have to influence them. And I can influence them aggressively or I can do it in a very charming, warm, empathic way, which is an oxytocin way. And what we know from research we've done and many others is that that aggressive response works in the moment. Sure. I, well, God, sure. Of course. Don't hit me. That works. But after a while, it, it loses its power. So you have to sort of amp up. At some point, I can't you know, hit you with a bat to make you do something. But the oxytocin response is also tunable. So if I know, Ricardo, that you're a very warm guy and we have a nice relationship, then I continue to want to have that reciprocal oxytocin release and you ask me to do some favor, I'm going to do it for you because that's the way human social creatures get along with each other. So I think the, there's this saying in English, you can capture more um, bees with honey than with vinegar or something. So, you know, it's the same, I'm sure it has in Portuguese as well. So um, you know, there's a real value to being nice. And, and that sounds really stupid, but um, all the research I've done in the last 20 years suggests that if you can keep yourself embedded in social groups, as long as those are kind of healthy social groups, then you basically networked yourself into having more opportunities for friendships, for work, for romantic relationships. So if you're isolated or you're cranky or you're unhappy, um, you know, you're going to be unhappy. So my first book, The Moral Molecule, one of the things I did was to go on rounds with a friend who is a hospice doctor. So end of life uh, care. And it's in the home. So it's, it's a very, uh, he said it's a sacred place. When someone's at home dying, uh, you're, you're entering a very, very special place. And um, anyway, he allowed me to go on rounds with him. And my question was, you know, if you live a good life, do you live a good death? And unfortunately, the answer is not always yes. Right. But the answer is generally less. When you have people that love you and care about you, when you're looking at the end of your life, those people there support you. They're there to give you love. They're there to help you through the, 
the very end of your life journey. And, you know, people who were unhappy, aggressive, isolated, they tend to die alone and they tend to die in a lot more pain and unhappiness. Again, not always, uh, but often. And to see people, uh, you know, with a hired helper that is just sitting by their bedside, assisting them, but doesn't care about them necessarily, that's a pretty unhappy death. So, um, oxytocin, happier life and happier, usually a happier death, as long as you're not too unlucky. Um, that's, that's pretty good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure is. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the hacks you were just referring to in terms of uh, as having a behavior that then allows for us to increase our levels of oxytocin. Because, I, I mean, as you said, oxytocin is very important for us to establish positive and healthy personal relationships. But it is also uh, important at a more at a broader level in terms of collectives of people. So oxytocin promotes trust among people and uh, trust, I guess, is one of the main ingredients for successful companies and institutions and, and even for successful societies. So what would you say are perhaps some of the most important things people could make in their companies, for example, to promote trust and to increase the levels of oxytocin and perhaps decrease the levels of other hormones and neurotransmitters that might have an antagonistic effect. So as we started doing this work, at some point, companies came to my lab and said, you're some expert on trust and we think it's important in our company. Can you tell us what we should do? And because I'm a super nerd, Ricardo, my first answer was, oh, well, we have an assay. We can take blood from your employees. And, you know, they would just turn white. Like, oh, no, we can't do that. You know, biohazard. And um, so, you know, I love when people come to me with, with interesting questions because then it, it helps me remove some of my ignorance. Like, actually, I don't know how to advise a, an organization how to raise trust via the oxytocin pathway in the brain. And so we began doing research in companies that actually got companies to give us permission to actually take blood from their employees, measure brain activity, measure uh, in, uh, the productivity of employees, we found a very strong relationship between uh, interpersonal trust within an organization and how productive people were, um, how long they uh, stayed at that job. So people were less likely to leave in a high trust organization. Um, they got sick less. They were happier at work. All kinds of good things happen when you're in this kind of tight, trusted social group. And the research identified eight core components that leaders can affect that impact the level of trust. Um, I won't go through all eight of those, but they have a nice acronym. They spell out oxytocin. I don't know how that happened magically, so they're easy to remember. Um, but part of this is really um, empowering individuals to be successful. So it's giving them the, uh, the freedom, giving them uh, the opportunity to control their work lives, but still hold them accountable. Right? If I trust you, I can give you a lot of leeway on how you execute your, your work, um, how you, uh, um, uh, who you work with at work. So you, we call this job crafting, who you want to work with, what kind of job you want to do. I want to celebrate you. Uh, I want to thank you for being at work. So one way to think about this is at work, um, consider everyone a volunteer. Right? You don't, I don't have to work for you. Right? I'm choosing to work for you. Yeah, I get paid, but 
I can go give my time and energy and passion elsewhere. So we know that pay is actually a very weak motivator for performance. What motivates us as social creatures is seeing like a thank you, a recognition of how hard I worked, a, a personal gift, um, an opportunity to grow with the company, to change. And so part of this has to do with the way we interact socially at work, but also clarity of goals, the vision of this company, why we're here. And my view is that, and, and lots of other management gurus have said this, like Peter Drucker, have said that at its core, every organization's goal is to improve people's lives. So all companies, all government organizations are there only because they should make our lives better. They help us do something. We may pay for that, but, but we, we generally are willing to do that because it's valuable to us. So once we understand, I call this transcendent purpose, the transcendent purpose of this organization, why we're here at all, we've shown in experiments that when people understand the purpose, the social purpose of work, they are much more productive. They're happier, their stress is lower, like, oh, I'm doing something great for the planet. I'm doing something great to help the humans, um, whether that's selling uh, you know, candy at the corner store or uh, you know, dentistry, fixing someone's teeth. That's something important to these people's lives. And once I understand that this is not about how much money I can be making at work, but that all work is a service organization, and in that sense, it makes the, the world better one person at a time, that's super motivating. So companies that, that live this social purpose, that talk about it, that's part of their, um, their life and how they go through their work, uh, tend to be much more productive. So concrete example, uh, LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, right, this, this uh, networking for business people, um, their uh, very succinct mission statement is that we exist to make our members more productive and more successful. Boom. So now I know if I'm doing something at LinkedIn, it should hit one of those two dimensions, if not both. And they can track those things because they have your work history and all that. So they can see if we add a new feature to LinkedIn, is it making you more successful and or more productive? Right? And if it's not, LinkedIn says, no, we shouldn't be doing that. There's lots of fun things we can do. We have, it's a big company with a lot of money. Do we want to do these things? Does it speak to that core mission? And that's a, a service mission, right? It's not that our core mission is to get as much money from the other people as possible. It's that we're serving these people at work so that they can be more productive and more successful in their professional lives, which also means your personal life. So anyway, so we think about people at work being volunteers, think about creating opportunities for positive social interactions, the way we design physical space, uh, having uh, joint meals, having snacks is a good way to do that. And then also thinking about the social purpose of work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do all of these motivators work better than, for example, uh, giving more money to someone? Because, I, I mean, I guess that one of the first things that come to mind uh, to people who are perhaps CEOs or something like that, and they want to motivate their workers even more, uh, uh, perhaps one of the first things that they think of is to perhaps increase their paycheck, but it seems that that's not really one of the best ways to do it, correct? Correct. So lots of research has shown that people acclimate to that higher paycheck right away. So the first couple of weeks you're excited and it's like, oh, well, this is the new standard. So things like um, one of the oxytocin components that businesses can control is something I call ovations. So celebrate when we, when we reach a goal. Celebrate how hard you worked on this project for three months. So those kind of things are um, very motivating to the brain. They, you don't acclimate them if I mix them up. 
you know, so, you know, we're celebrating lots of things. Um, we're giving opportunity to try new things. We're, we're, we're clear about the purpose of what you're doing, like why we're doing this. Not just, hey, Ricardo, we got a new thing. You're going to be doing this tomorrow. Okay, that, that sounds like a demand. But if I say, you know, we thought a lot about how to make the experience better for our customers and make it more interesting for you as an employee. So we're going to try doing this. So what we've, I've done in my new book, Trust Factor, is to identify these neurologic pathways, but also identify very clear what I call management experiments. These are all experiments. Right? So I could try giving you more money, and, and that's been tried for 100 years. doesn't work very well um, because, again, you acclimate to it. But I can try doing a monthly celebration of, of you know, some high-performing employee. And when I do that publicly, when I do it unexpectedly, when it comes from peers, all that has a much bigger impact on the brain. And now we set aspirations for everyone to be a high performer because as social creatures, we also like to be recognized. Uh, even the introverts, even the shy people like to be recognized for putting in extra effort. And so if um, a sort of extraordinary performance by that organization requires extraordinary effort by the employees, then I need to reward that some way. I need to recognize it. And these social recognitions are super powerful. And as I said earlier, we begin to acclimate to them. So now I'm like, oh my gosh, these people I work with love me. They really care about me. You know, this is amazing. And I, yeah, I want to, you know, work my butt off of them. So again, an, an imperfect analogy, but, but one that's uh, valuable neurologically is, you no know, soldiers at war, right? So, right, you're my brother, you're in the foxhole with me. Like, I only live if you live and, and you only live if I live. So we got to take care of each other. So I kind of want that mentality at work where we're a team we're doing something hard, it's important, and we don't want to blow up in our faces, so we've got to trust each other, we've got to depend on each other, and if I can depend on you, spend less time monitoring what you're doing, and more time moving that ball forward. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean, nowadays it seems to me that every time someone does a study on how people feel about their job, and what they think about it, and if they feel fulfilled or not doing it. Uh, one of the main complaints that seems to come about all the time is that people say that they are too stressed out and that they feel they are put under a lot of stress all day and they can even go on vacation without constantly checking out their email and thinking about their work and stuff like that. So wouldn't you say that another way by which we could promote better workplaces would, would be to us to give more space and freedom for people to do their job at their own pace as long as they keep up with the deadlines or, or not? Uh, so it's kind of two parts to that question. So let me answer both of those. So again, really good question. Um, sure, in high trust organizations, we see things like telecommuting, working from home, working from the beach, uh, working different hours. Why do we work eight to five or whatever, right? I mean, what if you're a, a night person and you work best from three in the afternoon till midnight? As long as you're getting your work done, your team's working. So I think all this is really optimizing that experience for the employees, for the people who are creating value anyway. So we want to give them that freedom. Again, you're, super, you're definitely accountable. Um, I'm a big believer in the daily check-ins, the weekly all-hand meetings. We want to make sure we're all on the same page, we're hitting milestones. Um, but if you want to do that from the, the beach in uh, Sagres, where I have been in your home country, um, go for it. I don't, you know, uh, as long as the work gets done, I need to see you once in a while in the office. Uh, the second thing you mentioned is stress. So 
as you know uh, from your training, stress is not bad, full stop. Chronic stress is bad. The stress that keeps you up at night, that makes you grind your teeth and gives you diabetes and heart disease, that's bad. But there's an inverted U-curve between stress, acute stress, and oxytocin release. So the brain's a very lazy organ. It doesn't want to burn the metabolic energy making oxytocin unless I have a reason to interact with the humans. And work gives me that reason. Like, hey, we got this deadline. We got two weeks. We got to do this thing. Now we got to pull all these social resources together. I got to work together. And if I do that in a way that empowers individuals to have freedom and choice in how they interact with other people, you get nice, strong oxytocin release. You also get some increase in stress hormones, but not so much that I'm inhibiting oxytocin. I even get an increase in testosterone. So now I'm driven, but I'm also relaxed. So it's this kind of focused, relaxed state where I'm creative, I'm innovative, I am focused on task. I'm not thinking about posting to Facebook or watching your wonderful podcast. I'm doing something else. I'm focused on this, this core goal. But then when that goal's over, I shed the stress of work. So we find uh, in studies I mentioned in uh, Trust Factor that in high-trust organizations, we measure physiologic responses to people at work. As soon as the task is over, their blood pressure drops, their uh, heart rate drops really rapidly in a high-trust culture. In a low-trust culture, you stay kind of physiologically aroused, and that's what causes arteriosclerosis, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. So um, lots of benefits from being in this tight, caring social group, including less chronic stress and actually happiness, more happiness outside of work because you're not so beat up from work when you get home. You can be a better spouse, a better husband, a better citizen. So uh, there's a big win-win space there for organizations, for employees, and for entire societies. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Zek, perhaps just one last question. We've been talking here about how people can structure their organizations to promote trust and to, for them to be healthier and less stressful for their employees. But uh, are there uh, any ways by which the employees themselves uh, might follow to try to empower themselves in their own organization uh, without really expecting something more from their uh, bosses, for example. Yeah, you have a lot of examples in the book of employees who organize themselves to create better structures at work. Uh, so lots of really easy ways to do this, and, and the book is full of those examples. Um, I think more generally, you know, if you want to kind of optimize your culture for high trust and high performance, and those are strongly associated with each other, you've got to measure first. Uh, so we create a website, ofactor.com, O for oxytocin, ofactor.com. You can use our survey for free, and you can assess the trust in your organization. That could be your family, your three-person business, your thousand-person business. So first is measure, and then identify among these eight core components that create organizational trust, which is lowest. And the, the book and the website have lots of examples on how to push on the lowest of those factors to raise that effect, which will have the, the biggest effect on performance. Then raising something, is, if something is in the 80th percentile, it's great, leave it alone. But if you have one of those factors at the 20th percentile, yeah, that's a real, um, it's kind of damaging to the workplace, it's damaging to the employees. So let's try to raise that. And lots of examples in the book of how companies have raised one or more of these oxytocin components, have increased... Uh, you know, productivity, engagement by employees, and perform better as an organization. So easy to do, and it's good for the humans. So it's, again, this nice win-win space. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dr. Zek, apart from the website you've just referred to and your books, uh, are there any other places on the internet that you would like for people to know about if they want to go there and know a little bit more about your work? Thank you. Yeah, too. So we have a creative company that um, uses wearable technologies to measure um, what we call immersion and experience. Is it really valuable to you? Do you care about it? Are you emotionally engaged via oxytocin and some other factors? And that website is immersionneuro.com, I-M-M-E-R-S-I-O-N-N-E-U-R-O.com. And more about me at pauljzack.com. And I love hearing from people. So if you're listening and you've got questions, shoot me an email and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And um, Ricardo, thank you so much for the, the honor of being on here with you. Oh, it was a real pleasure. I will be leaving links to all of what you've just referred to in the description box of this video. So people, please go and check it out because it's really interesting. And Dr. Zek, it was really a huge pleasure to have you on the channel. I've been a big fan, so thank you a lot for taking the time. Anytime. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. Uh, I've started this channel in February 2018 and so I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and I would really like to ask you just to consider visiting my Patreon page and making a pledge there. Any amount, even one dollar, would already be a great help. Uh, and so otherwise if you like what I'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Per Elga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Jelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda and Brian Rivera thank you for all